Welcome to Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. So, Liz. Yes. Apparently, we have the hottest podcast among conservatives (laughs) in Washington, D.C. Really? Tell me, Julie. Tell me how that is. Tell me your story. So, this week is the first trial of a January 6th defendant, um, Guy Reffitt. Uh, standing, (laughs) facing numerous charges, none of them really serious. At any rate, they're doing jury selection. And on Monday, a woman who was a potential juror was asked what she listened to. And she said, well, I listened to a lot of podcasts, including Happy Hour with Julie Kelly. And she said, Liz Shelt, but I'm sorry, the political reporter who was reporting it didn't know your name. So I had to tag you in it. Um. Anyway, this made quite the splash, quite the headlines on Monday and Tuesday. um, I was called, you know, right wing conspiracy theorist. Um, But anyway, our podcast was the subject of much discussion, not just in the media, but also during jury selection. And um, sadly, the woman did not make the jury, though. (laughs) So she was. Yeah, I would guess that saying that you get your J6 information from Julie Kelly is like an instant, like get the hook, right? Where the hook comes out and you just like pull you off stage or the floor opens and you just go, you disappear like that shoot in um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. So, yeah. That, so I guess well, Julie, on Tuesday. You do, media, you do a lot of media because you're really the only person that is writing about this and has all the knowledge. So, you know, if if uh, if you aren't someone who gets all their news from CNN or from the Washington Post or HuffPo or BuzzFeed or whatever, you're gonna get it. You're gonna see Julie Kelly on some media. So, you know, I would dare say that our listener numbers don't support the fact that we have a avalanche of listeners getting their information from this particular show. But from your lips to God's ear. Anyway, so. Julie, tell our listeners and the future jury pool uh, participants, like, who our, who our guest is today. So our guest is, well, this is part two of our um, interview with Brandon Strzok, who was is the founder of the Walk Away Movement and was ensnared in this abusive uh, DOJ's J6 um, investigation. Not only that, but he's also in legal uh, the legal crosshairs by others. Um, so we talked in our podcast uh, two weeks ago about what he has been through. And I think we're picking up now, Brandon, um, you were explaining the TSA uh, lines, TSA security that you have to go through, which just blew people's minds. Um, but anyway, I think we just wanted to pick up where we left off, what's been happening ever since, and some of the other lawsuits that you're involved with. Yes. Well, it sounds like you're depending on me to remember where we left off. (laughs) And that is your first mistake, Julie Kelly. Uh, (laughs) Okay, let's just leave. Let's go to Brandon. Let's go to your plea agreement, your hearing. I think that's where we were headed. And what Judge Friedrich, the Trump appointed uh, judge on the D.C. District Court, said to you. And then, you know, what has basically been happening to you since then and what your plans are really for the future. So let's start with your plea hearing. Yeah, well, so, you know, that 
my case ended up getting extended out like five times. So it was kind of like a stretched out nightmare. But in the end, uh, what was offered to me was to plead guilty to a single misdemeanor charge of disorderly conduct on capital grounds. Um, and uh, I wish I could talk more and talk more openly about the actual conditions of this agreement. Someday I'll be able to. Today is not that day, unfortunately. Um, because uh, uh, how about suffice it to say it was very, very, very painful for me to sign that document. And um, it actually put me into a, a very, very dark depression for several weeks. I mean, honestly, for I'm still depressed about it. But the initial depression that was the first few weeks was unbearable. Like, like, physical pain type of depression um, because it's again, I, you know, I, there's not a lot I can say, but I guess suffice it to say that uh, it's you, you get very little say over the content of what goes into the plea agreement. It's kind of a one sided narrative that you either sign it or you don't. And <clears throat> so I did um, because to me, the choices that were available to me were uh, go to trial uh, which is incredibly expensive. I mean, even just what I've spent on this one misdemeanor is I'm well into six figures of legal costs mm -hmm. just on this misdemeanor charge. Uh, and it would have been much more than that if I'd gone to trial. And also, um, if you look around and you see what's happening in nearly every J6 case with nearly every uh, D.C. judge and the prosecution, and I guess we're about to find out now what will happen with the juries. Um I didn't really feel like I had I, I it felt the question for me was never how do I win in this situation? Never. That was never the question. The question was only how do I lose the least? And to me, the right decision seemed mm -hmm. to be to just move forward with the misdemeanor and try to move forward as expeditiously and inexpensively uh, with my life as I possibly could. And so we finally got to sentencing by the end of January. Now, that was an entire year because I was arrested on January 25th, 2021. My sentencing finally happened on January 24th, 2022. So literally almost an entire year. And, mm. um, it, you know, I, I guess all I can really say in regards to the experience that I had and what I felt like was the position of Judge Friedrich was um, I felt like I was not being viewed as an individual. I felt like my experience was not being viewed as an individual experience my feeling was that for, in my case and probably most of these cases, every person involved is, is being viewed as a member of a mob. So right. <laughs> that's that's how I felt. I mean, I didn't feel like any um, any consideration was given to the fact that I didn't know about things that were taking place on the other side of the building. I didn't know about the violence that was I, I simply didn't know. And like, I'll put it this way. In my opinion, people can agree or disagree. But in my opinion, every person's situation should be treated as its own thing. Like what was happening at the time that I was there on in the location I was at, which was on the east side of the building, should be treated as its own incident. And so even if someone looks at the footage of what was taking place on the east side and says, you know, there's criminality here, there's inappropriate behavior, that's fine. I'm OK with that. But please just don't hold me responsible for what people were doing on the other side of the building when I wasn't there. And that's what's going on. 
That's exactly right. They are treating this. They are not prosecuting or sentencing people like you or all of the January 6th defendants individually. I mean, they refer to this as an attack on the Capitol, attack on democracy, et cetera, all the words that they use in charging documents. And of course, that the judges are going along with, too. And, you know, they're very careful in the charging documents to say, although every person has to, you know, the merits of each case has to be considered individually, still this person was part of blah, blah, blah. So you're right. You are part of the entire body 730 plus defendants right now from people who are charged with attacking police officers down to, you know, parading or misdemeanor like you have. The and majority that's just not how things should be. That's just not how things should be. No, no. And honestly, if um, I, it, the, those of us who got arrested and charged with something and to, uh, for your audience, to be clear, I was never accused of any violence because I didn't commit any. I was never accused of any vandalism or destruction, and I didn't go inside the building. So it's not even as though I did something violent and they just didn't have evidence of it. The government from the very beginning said we know that Mr. Strzok did not engage in any violence, vandalism, destruction or theft, and we know he didn't go inside the building. All of those things are true. I didn't do any of those things. But for any of us who have been arrested and charged, and as you just pointed out, and it's the majority of people who've been arrested have been arrested on nonviolent misdemeanors of either going inside the Capitol and what they're calling parading or people like myself who didn't even go inside. But we were in a restricted area, which is to say the steps of the Capitol. We've become kind of figureheads in a way of what is being called an insurrection. Mm-hmm. And if if people were being honest, which they're not, nobody who is enraged at people like me or using the justice system to um, harass and and abuse people like myself, if people were being honest, they what they would actually be saying is that we're being punished for not just simply complying with the assertion that Joe Biden won this election fairly, because they can't the people who are on the outer grounds who never you know, went into a restricted area or anything like that, they know they can't charge them with any crimes. But those people – it's not like anybody says, oh, these people had the right to be there. They had the right to believe what they believe. They had the right to demonstrate. No one's saying that. They're, they're just as hateful and angry at any of the people who didn't get charged as they are at us. It's just that they've been kind of given, I guess, you know, social permission to point their rage at people like us because we were charged. But again, nobody cares that I was on the Capitol steps. Nobody, nobody on the left gives a damn that I was on the Capitol steps. They give a damn that I stood up and said, there's something wrong with this election. And the rest and the charges are what gave them permission to execute their absolute hatred upon me and, uh, and call me an insurrectionist and a terrorist. But the act of terrorism isn't going on the stairs. It's that I didn't just say, oh, yes, absolutely. Joe Biden is the most popular candidate in American history. That is so well said, because I think that that gets overshadowed, is that the and this is what you're seeing happening with the January 6th Select Committee in Congress. And certainly you see this even, you know, people who are forced to say Mia Culpa is in court. I do believe now that Joe Biden is the legitimately elected president of the United States. That's what Paul Hodgkins had to say in his plea agreement before the court. That that is what these people want to hear. So you're right. The crime is that you protested an unlawful election. You supported the audit that was going to happen that day, as most people there also were. Um, And that is your 
quote unquote crime. Correct. Yeah. And because when you look at something as sad as what has happened this last week with Matthew Perna and all of the absolutely disgusting, despicable, atrocious comments that people are making, you know, oh, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. I know. If, if you look into all of the comments that people are putting, what they're saying is things like, well, then you shouldn't have gone to the Capitol. You shouldn't have gone to the Capitol. And there, that is the most honest thing that has been said about January 6th. That right there, that's the honest heart of the matter truth that the left is telling. They're not mad that people went inside the Capitol. They'll say it, they don't care, but the truth is they don't care. They don't care that people inside, the, they certainly don't care that police officers got hurt. They do not care about that at all. What right. they care about is that we went to the Capitol because we did not believe that the election was handled as fairly and accurately as it possibly could have been, that there were irregularities. That's the part they care about. But they just, they know it's uh, too honest to actually say that out loud. Brandon, let's talk about Matthew Perna. Um, I know okay. you were very uh, I know you were very upset to hear what happened to him because, of course, you can relate with what him and, and hundreds of others are going through. And so Matthew Perna um, committed suicide on last Friday night. Uh, he had agreed finally, like you just said, Brandon, to plead guilty to an obstruction felony and three low-level misdemeanors, trying to move on with his life. He had lost his job, friends, family members, the love of his life. His father said, he, you know, he couldn't even go outside of his house into his own hometown because he's been called a traitor, a terrorist, an insurrectionist, et cetera. So he thought, okay, you know, can't go before this judge and try to get a fair deal. I certainly won't get a fair deal in front of a Washington jury as his lawyer told him. So he pleaded guilty, hoping he'd spend a few months in jail. DOJ came back, informed his attorney they would be seeking an eight-level sentencing enhancement enhancement that could put him in jail for up to between 57 and 71 months. That, his attorney said, drove him over the edge. And he, at 37 years old, hanged himself in his garage last Friday. People are outraged, infuriated, sickened by this. But I'm also disgusted at how many people think, well, too bad. You were guilty. You didn't want to deal deal with your punishment. So, okay, you chose to kill yourself. I'm sorry you killed yourself, but then don't commit a crime, to your point, what people continually say. So talk about the mental torture that you have gone through and people like Matthew have gone through um, since January 6th? Well, I, I don't, I'll do the best I can, but it, it's so much to even, I, I don't even know where to start. I mean, so the, the parts that I really relate on are that this situation is so overwhelming. It's so torment. I, I can't even put into words what it feels like to be a one person, an individual who has multiple departments within the federal government raining down on you with their entire mind. I mean, I was receiving letters uh, from multiple officials within the government from multiple departments. As I, you and I have gotten into the, you know, the TSA stuff, um, Department of Homeland Security. I mean, I was getting all of these letters telling me that, uh, you know, not only are you being investigated, but you're on this list and now you're forbidden from doing this and you're being watched by this. And it's scary as hell. And, uh, you know, I just I kept thinking your mind starts 
you can't really shut off like where does this end because you're you're constantly wondering what's coming next and what's coming next and what's coming next and everything that they're telling you start to get this very clear picture that everything that they're telling you is not honest i mean my attorney god bless him i had two attorneys and they were vastly different people from vastly different perspectives. They didn't work within the same law firm. They were, uh, in fact, living in two different states, but sort of just collaborating on my case. And one had a primary role and one had a secondary role. And the attorney who had the secondary role was younger and very much of the mindset that we cannot trust this DOJ. We cannot trust this prosecution. Everything that that we're probably being gamed uh, all, at every step. My primary attorney was older, and um, and the only reason I bring that up is because he's of an entirely different generation, and he's also had 30 years of federal criminal defense trial experience. And I feel like he, through this whole thing, was operating under this assumption that it was like a di- you know a different time that it was a DOJ that he probably was used to dealing with back when mm-hmm. someone could be a Republican and someone could be a Democrat but there's still sort of a, a gentlemanly uh, uh, a gr- you know uh, even between prosecution and defense that there's like a, a code of honor that can still be sort of expected and that's not the case. I, I think that the DOJ was lying to him. I think he was trusting them. And I, I've i never been in a situation like this before. So, you know, when he kept saying, you know, no, they're telling us this, they're telling us this. And I think we're in good shape. I think he kept saying that. I think we're in good shape. And, um, you know, Julie, you and I have had many conversations over the last year since and you and I only developed this relationship because of January 6th and the things that happened. But Mm -hmm. I remember in one of the conversations I had with you uh, probably three, four months ago, I said, you know, I think that we're actually looking at a dismissal of my case. They're telling us that they're very seriously considering dismissing my charge. And I just remember you going, "Okay." But I I really believed it at that time because my attorney, my primary attorney believed it. And not only were they being completely dishonest with us about that 100 percent dishonest, but what they came back with us came back to us next with uh, was much, much worse than anything that we would even our worst case scenario of what we expected. And I absolutely understand what Matthew was going through because you could there was nothing you could depend on to say, okay. I mean, even if they laid it out honestly and said, like, look, we're going to come down on you hard. We're not, there, there are going to be uh, you're going to be made an example of there. there there's going to be no mercy. OK, at least then you kind of know where you stand and you can expect the worst. But it, it, nothing that they said was true. And so it, it became, I think, a huge head game. And for me, in my own personal case, which is probably, you know, d- different in its own way than other people, but. I kept they kept telling us we need 60 more days. We need 90 more days. We need, you know, and they were kind of dangling this, you know, we could add an obstruction charge. So far, Mm -hmm. we haven't charged you with felony obstruction. But so it was very clear to me to just keep giving them what they wanted another continuance, another continuance, another continuance. And with every continuance, we were told that that would be the last one. That would be the end. And so my team and I would start planning for the relaunch of our organization. Okay, we're not going to be able to relaunch walk away in May. So let's move it to the 4th of July. Okay, it's not going to be the 4th of July, so let's move it to September. Let's move it to now January. And we would keep hiring event planners and keep hiring whatever. And then we'd have to go back and be like, we have to cancel. We have to cancel. And that's – it's crushing. I mean, I don't know if people can – it's a lot of work to plan an event, to plan a relaunch, to plan whatever. I mean, it's 
imagine planning the biggest event of the year for your organization five times and having to cancel it five times. And each time you lose hope that uh, you're like, you don't even want to do it anymore. You know, and, and, and then through, and then throughout the course of that year, it becomes, you start hearing from the committee, the January 6th committee, and then you, then you get served in a civil lawsuit and you're just, it's just piling on and it's piling on. And you're like, my God, I didn't even know this stupid riot was happening Like I was one of the last people probably in the country to even learn that it was happening because it was close to 2.30 p.m. before I was getting messages from people saying we're hearing people are going inside the building and I was already on my way because I was supposed to speak. And so I continued forward and shot a video and I stood outside for eight minutes. So in this weird way, it's like I feel, yes, I was there and yes, I broke the law when I went on the steps or whatever, but I was so – not involved in whatever sparked the riot. And yet I feel like I'm being punished more than just about anybody because I'm, you know, I, the, the J six committee wants to talk to me and I'm being sued by these Capitol police officers who I've never met and I'm being criminally charged. And I'm just like, this is, uh, it's, it's an unfathomable amount of punishment for somebody who like, I just for eight minutes was went to the wrong place. And you right. know what I mean? It, it, it is. And I think the way you just described it is so important because it will help people understand why so many people are taking plea deals. You know, it's I think early on, people were sort of saying when they were getting a lot of these parading pleas and then a few obstruction. Well, why are they pleading? Why are they pleading? And I was like, <sighs> you can't put yourself in these people's shoes. This is an un, to your point, an unprecedented, oppressive nonstop barrage of legal social torment that and with a wholly dishonest Justice Department, a biased D.C. District Court, even the Trump appointed judges like you had, um, they're all in this working together against people who even if you people with some sort of means can't at the end of the day defend themselves. I mean, you're talking six figures for uh, pleading guilty for disorderly conduct. Imagine these people who have charges for assaulting police officers right? and they can't afford it. So they have public defenders, public defenders who hate them and are giving them terrible advice too. So the whole system is so corroded and so abusive. But I think you just explained why people are taking plea deals and I mean, we had a plea deal yesterday. Joshua James pleaded guilty to seditious conspiracy. I mean, this is nothing the DOJ has even been able to successfully prosecute in decades. But he was forced into taking this plea for whatever reason. So everyone's like, well, he took the plea because he's guilty. Really? OK, that's that's right. That's how Washington, D.C.'s judicial and legal system works. Yes, he took it because he's guilty. You're a genius. So I think you just explained why people like that are so forced into a corner. They feel like that is maybe their safest route. Stop spending a couple hundred thousand dollars on an attorney. You're going to go to jail anyway. It could be a matter of a few years. What difference? Your life is destroyed anyway. So, uh, well, you know, and what you just said, I think actually also helps illustrate why Matthew Perna made the tragic decision that he made because. Okay, let's for a moment relate it to my case. So, again, my case is slightly different because I'm a public figure and my relationship, you know, uh, with the public is different because of that. Now, I made a decision not to post on social media for an entire year because 
I didn't feel safe saying anything. Like I didn't feel safe literally even posting something that said like, hey, I'm having a great day today, feeling good, don't worry about me. Because I thought even posting something like that, I know the DOJ is reading everything I'm putting out. My fear is literally like that they're gonna say, oh, he's not miserable enough, let's make it worse. Like Mm -hmm. nothing felt safe to say, so I felt better just saying nothing. Well, while that's happening, as you pointed out, you know, the news is still going on and on, spinning their horrible stories about, you know, what I did and 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 the decisions that I'm making with my case. And I have conservatives reaching out to me and saying, why would you ever take a plea deal if you didn't do anything wrong? Why would you do this? Why would you whatever? And and they're putting me in a position to like there were conservatives and, and some of them, I'm sure, were even my own fans. That were like, Brandon Strzok, you need to speak out about this right now. If you don't speak out about this right now and explain to us why we did this, then we're ha- we have no choice then to believe that you're guilty and everything that they're saying is true. And I'm like, so in the middle of the most horrifying criminal case that a person could possibly be involved in where I'm making a conscious decision not to speak, just to try to come out of this in half of a piece, not even one piece, but a, a fraction of a piece. Yeah. My own followers, some of them, not not the majority, thank God, but, you know, I have people on supposedly my own team questioning why I would ever make the decisions that I make and demanding that I make a public statement and that if I don't make a public statement, it's somehow indicative of of my you know supreme guilt or something like that. And I'm sitting there. That's the kind of stuff that makes people feel hopeless. And I know that it was happening to Matthew and I know it was it's happening probably to everybody. And it's. And these people, too, it's enraging. These people who, again, they're conservatives and they're saying, well, I would never sign a plea deal. I would never whatever. Like, I would love to see what you would do when the FBI drags you out of bed, throws you in a cell and the entire Department of Justice is saying we're charging you with this, 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 this and this doesn't matter whether you did it or not. Doesn't matter whether we can prove whether you did or not. I mean, the writing is on the wall. It's really clear. Like you are not going to get a fair shake with a D.C. judge. You're not going to get a fair shake with a D.C. jury. Your your options are very, very limited. And all of these people who are really bold, you know, oh, I would never do such a thing. I would love to see that in action. I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, we're we're taking this interview now. And unfortunately, we have just have a few more minutes because we got to jump on. But, Brandon, I want to have you back regularly just to because what you're saying is so important and and you're so passionate. You're such a good communicator. But today, uh, Dan McLaughlin at National Review came up and said, well, he pleaded guilty to seditious conspiracy because he's guilty. And it's like, do you. How long do you think that some a national review writer or your average conservative commentator would would be able to put go, go through what you went through? Not they wouldn't last a a day, not a day. So I I, I share with you that outrage. Yeah, and and you have no idea what else this this guy might be going through. I mean, they take everyone's devices. They scour your emails and your your social media messages. God only knows what conversations he might have had completely unrelated to January 6th that or anything that may have been going on in his life that was being held against him, you know, and right. said like you, you this could be revealed or we could publicize this. I mean, there's so many reasons why people feel they have to make the decision that they make, which doesn't even have to do with the case. That's you know, right. I, it, right. So. So before we sign off here, you are but you are aggressively 
doing a media tour. I see you, your interviews everywhere. I'm so glad you're getting attention. So uh, what's your next step with the walkway movement? Uh, you know, I know you and I talked the past year and the conversation was basically don't let them break you. You know, the biggest yeah. thing that they wanted to do aside from what they've already done to you is stop what you're doing politically. So just tell us, we're going to touch base with you, you know, in the next couple months or months or so, but tell us where you are now. Well, yeah. So my house arrest ends on April 28th. So in the meantime, during the next few months that I have as the remainder of my house arrest sentence, we're going to continue to do work with walkaway, basically utilizing uh, virtual mediums. So one thing that we're really utilizing right now is Twitter spaces. Um, and, and you have to keep in mind with walkaway, our goal is to get people to leave the left. That's our whole purpose. So walkaway can't be a, a, a thriving success if we only exist on mediums like Truth Social and Getter. We have to go where liberals are. Because <clears throat> I know right. a lot of conservatives are like, how dare you use Twitter? Are you a conservative <laughs> or not? It's like, yes, I am a conservative. <laughs> but I uh, but I need to be able to connect with liberals to change their mind. So we've been utilizing Twitter spaces because it's great. You can get hundreds, sometimes thousands of people to uh, engage in a space. We just did one a couple of weeks ago for the black community, black American thought leaders. I have some really exciting ones coming up, including for the Hispanic community, the LGBT community. But one I'm really excited about is I have a number of friends I've made in the last couple of years who are Hollywood uh, comedians who have left the left and have been ostracized in their careers and their communities for leaving the left. So we're going to do a Twitter Spaces event soon, Walk Away Comedians. Uh, so I think Great. it's going to be really funny and really engaging, but also, you know, deliver a powerful message. And then once my house arrest is finally over, then we're going to get back out and doing live events again and re-engaging our community. Uh, we're also going to be launching our own social platform, Walkaway Social, which if anyone wants to go to walkawaycampaign.com, they can see a little 30-second snippet of where we are with Walkaway Social. It's pretty cool. It's going to be great. Uh, that'll be launching in the coming year. So we have a lot of great work to do. Uh, just the last thing I want to say, I guess, is that I'm very concerned about what I'm seeing um, in the conservative movement. I, I, see, I, I know that people are feeling... Uh, defeated by the 2020 election, and I think they're feeling defeated about the state of the country right now. But I really need people to put on their big girl and their big boy pants and get it together because we've got a lot of work to do. I'm not giving up after everything I've been through, which means no one else is allowed to give up. If I can go through what I went through and keep going, sure as hell, everyone else can too. But what I can't do is waste the, the remaining energy that I have left trying to convince people how important it, is, important it is to fight for our country. So I need everyone to change their attitudes, you know, pull their pants up and let's go because this is a midterm election year. It's go time. And I need all hands on deck once my house arrest is over on April 28th. Go to walkwaycampaign.com, see what we're doing and get it together because I need everyone's help. That I, I'm speechless. That was beautifully said and if oh, after everything can you see oh, sorry go ahead i wish you guys could see it. next time we're going to do video with brandon because he's so animated <laughs> and he's so nice looking and he's so energetic and yeah so Thank um you. that is well said but brandon if they can't they wanted to not just break you in so many ways but break your spirit and they did not so they, no, didn't. they didn't no they did not and no. they won't no, they won't. No, they won't. So God bless you. I know a lot of people are rooting for you and you. uh, you're going to be 10 times the force to reckon with 
they might have created more of a monster than what they thought. Let's hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I guess I'll close out too by saying just, you know, how, again, how much I appreciate you. And I think the country appreciates you because I don't understand why there aren't hundreds of Julie Kellys in the conservative movement, but I'm sure as hell glad that there's one. So thank you, Julie Kelly. Well, that's very sweet. And I'm sure the conservative movement is glad there's only one of me. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, we're uh, I'm a big fan of yours. Always here to support you. And uh, we are going to have you back soon so you can keep everyone not just updated on what you're doing, but keep everyone motivated and focused because that's what we need. Yeah. Thanks, Julie. All right. God bless. Our next guest is not just our favorite guest, but I think one of our favorite just people of all time, um, nice. author, <laughs> the greatest investigative reporter out there, just overall decent man, which there's very few of in this business. Um, so our friend Lee Smith is here to talk about a couple of things. Lee, thanks so much for having us for uh, not having us on for us having you on. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Julie, for the super nice introduction. And it's great to be with you and Liz. Thank you guys for, uh, well, I mean, thank you for inviting me on. And when I have a chance, I'll invite you on to something I'm doing. I don't know what, but Ooh, thank okay. you. Yeah. <laughs> I'll invite so you guys before, to dinner. Yeah. Even better. But, you know, Liz will be asleep by then, so I'll just show up. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> So, Lee, before we talk about your outstanding article that was just everywhere this week on Ukraine, um, I know you wanted to, uh, you know, you being the man that you are and several other, you know, the news about what happened to Matthew Perna, the January 6th defendant who tragically ended his life last Friday night, couldn't take any more of the torment, torture of what he had been going through. So I know you reached out to me um, about that, and I know, uh, yeah. you know, you had some thoughts or, or just, you know, comments I, I, you wanted I, to make. I didn't really have any thoughts. You know, I read what you, uh, your article and um, and your tweets, and then I, 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 when you were on Tucker, you know, and um, and you were talking about Matthew Perna, and then they cut to a picture of him, and uh, it was really just devastating. Yeah, because he was, I mean, to us, young, 37 is still young. Um, I mean, it's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's young and um, they just destroyed him. So Lee, I guess. My wife, my, my wife, whom both of you know, was really shaken when they put his picture on the screen and, you know, good. I'm glad, I mean, I'm not glad that my wife was shaken, but it's good that people should be affected by this because it's, 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 I mean, it's astonishing the, 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 um, pain that our government, our national security establishment is now putting the American people through and there will be no forgetting and there will be no forgiveness either. They will never be forgiven for this. And um, at a certain point, at a certain point, the hunters will be hunted. I hope it's okay to say that on your podcast, but people should know they they should know everyone should know that this will never be forgotten what they've done to americans will never be forgotten and will never be forgiven i think that that's well said and needs to be said and we need to be at the tip of that spear and making sure 
that that happens because Lee, in your wildest yeah. imaginations, covering um, DOJ, what they did to the president, obviously in your two books, the permanent coup, the plot against the president, and then your uh, documentary, mm-hmm. would you ever have imagined that they would be capable of doing what they're doing now to people like Matthew Perna? I mean, you know, people have been saying for several years, you know, if they can do this to, um, you know, if they can do this to the president if they can do it to a retired three-star general like Michael Flynn, they can do it to anyone. And I think that none of us really quite understood what that meant because I think our impression all the time is, well, they're targeting Trump because he's a political target. What they're doing is illegal uh, and it's terrible and it's destroying the country. It's destroying the country, but but look, these are these are the heads or or key uh, figures for for the right. Trump, uh, General Flynn, others. Just of course, not to rationalize it, right? It's not to rationalize it. Mm-hmm. But now that I think that we understand what that what that means, that if they were willing to expend that much energy on powerful people um, like. Uh, like Donald Trump, who has the wherewithal to protect himself to a certain extent, what would they do to people who have no ability to protect themselves? And that's one of the that's one of the ugly things about this, like or or the ugliest thing, going after Americans who who don't have un, unlimited resources with to, to protect themselves against the Department of Justice, which has unlimited resources. Of course, in those unlimited resources. Uh, are courtesy of the American taxpayers. So they're using American taxpayer money to go after American taxpayers. I, I mean, no, 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 actually, I, I don't think that I, that I could have imagined how many people they would put through this amount of pain. And of course, Julie, you know, you reported, I, I mean, you reported more than anyone, more thoroughly than anyone else about the, the, the people that they actually killed that day. And how and how their murderers, how their hunters have been lionized by the press, by the Democratic Party and uh, and, 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 and right wing associates like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, how, how these people have been, you know, turned turned into heroes. I mean, it's disgraceful. They're murderers. This was uh, the, 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 it's, it's a I mean, Ashley Babbitt was assassinated. Roseanne Boyle, I mean, she, she, she was beaten. And all of a sudden, the, the, these are heroes. These are people that we're supposed to that, that we're supposed to look up to and, and adore. I mean, it's 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 repulsive. And again, and again, all of these names: Lila Morris, uh, uh, Matthew Graves. This was the prosecutor who went after uh, Michael Graves. Is, uh, did I have that right? Matthew Matthew Graves. Yes. Matthew Graves. I mean, yep. you know, th- th- these are names that should be etched. Um, that should be etched in our record keeping forever. That's right. Um, oh, they- I just want to point out, like, we, for all of Trump's shortcomings, and we certainly talk about those shortcomings here, he he did say, and I think we all knew this to be true, is that they were really coming after, quote, us, right? Yeah. He said, they're coming after you. They're yeah. not, it's, it's not just really Trump. It's the supporters. And I think he said that pretty early on, even in the campaign trail. And it took five years, but it certainly came to pass. And I I wrote about that in particular in the permanent coup. I'm speaking with then Congressman Nunes, our, um, you know, now CEO of Truth Social of um, Trump Media and Technology Group. And he said, you know, 
I realized that the coup really is not about Donald Trump. And that's what the, the title refers to. The coups against, uh, you know, the coup is meant to undermine the foundations of the republic. And it's true. And I, again, like I'm saying, I, I, I wrote these things. But then to see how this plays out in the lives of our neighbors and the lives of fellow Americans. And yeah, still, even after all we've seen, there are some things that are shocking. And to see the picture of that, you know, to see the picture of, um, of, of Matthew Perna, it just, it just again, it's, it's just a, a shocking reminder of the effect that these monsters have had on the lives of everyday Americans, decent people, people with, you know, with, with regular dreams and ambitions and families and fears and hopes. And, um, and, and, and they're just looking to stomp them out. I mean, this is just, uh, this is, uh, you know, for a while, I think we said it's scary. Now I think that now I think the emotions are starting to turn, um, and it's turning into rage and fury and, um, and, uh, yeah. I, I hope you're right. And, you know, just before we move on to Ukraine, Liz Cheney tweeted out yesterday, uh, Joshua James, who was an alleged oath keeper who pleaded guilty to seditious conspiracy last night, which is just insane. If you could even put your put your brain around the fact yeah. that any att- attorney would let an American citizen plead guilty to basically being a traitor. She tweeted it out. And what infuri- enraged me, like almost yeah. to a blind rage, which is not hard to do nowadays, as you can imagine, is Joshua James joined the army after he, mm. after high school. He was deployed to Baghdad in 2007 under Liz Cheney's father's war on terror, where he was almost killed when a bomb blew up right in front of him, killed three oh. other soldiers next to him. He was gravely injured, almost was killed received the pur- a Purple Heart, um, came back to re- rehabilitate himself, suffered from PTSD, severe PTSD, became an Oath Keeper because he was alarmed, like many people, of what was happening with the country, went to the Capitol to allegedly provide security for, Robert, uh, for um, Roger Stone, went into the building for less than five minutes. For that, his life has been destroyed. For whatever reason, we have no idea what the DOJ did threatened him with, promised, whatever. He pleaded guilty. And here is Liz Cheney taking a victory lap for this man who's almost killed by her father's war, now basically pleading guilty to being a traitor to his country. And I listened to this heartbreaking hearing, and you could hear in his voice, he's 33 years old, has three young children, runs like a gutter and window cleaning service. Um, I'm sorry. Let's change subjects. No, it's okay, Julia. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, to get, I mean, it's, it's a very emotional subject. You're, you're right, and, and that's of course why, you know, uh, uh, there's millions, if not tens or hundreds of millions of Americans who are outraged and uh, as moved by these as by these stories that you've, you know, that you've told us about, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's. It's it's so important what you've been doing, and again to um, to tell the stories of the people who have been victimized by these monsters, ghouls as you call them, and to remind people of who the ghouls are and what they stand for and what they've done. All right, let's move on to a more opt- 
uh, cheerier topic, um, which well, is this, this is impending a, World War III yeah. Um, yeah. nuclear. It's a, it's, uh, a perfect, it's a perfect transition, actually, and I'll tell I know. you what. It's a perfect transition. <laughs> Let's just move into the impending nuclear doom, uh, apparently, we're facing. Um, so for the last week, I guess it's been a week, <clears throat> we have been watching the headlines and hearing about this, uh, the Russia, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And this is a much more complicated situation historically than really is being presented. And Lee, you have a wonderful piece at Tablet um, that does a good job of kind of giving a big picture look at really what's going on and what's the dynamic at work here in Eastern Europe. So just for our listeners who don't know, what is the history between Ukraine and Russia? Like not going back to year one, but basically oh. give us yeah. a t- right. <laughs> a well, how, about, how, about, how about this? How about if I explain how the U.S. national security establishment, in particular when Democrats have, uh, under Democratic administrations, have used Ukraine as, a, as an instrument against Russia. And this is a, it's, I mean, why I say it's a perfect transition, again, it's like while the Ukrainian political class bears a lot of responsibility for letting their country be used by American policymakers, um, you know, the, 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 it, it really is the U.S. national security establishment who has used, you know, who has used Ukrainians as um, pieces on their game board to uh, to affect a policy against Vladimir Putin. I mean, one of the big questions is, to, to what end? What does the U.S. national security establishment, what do American policymakers want from Russia, right? We're, we're, it's, they, they, they've right. never articulated this, right? Do they want Vladimir Putin? I, I'm, 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 I'm sorry, it's going to sound facetious, but here it goes. It's like, do, do, do they want Vladimir Putin to legalize gay marriage in Russia? Is, is, is that the issue? Is Russia not um, liberal enough? Is 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 Russia doing something um, on its on in its um, area of influence that's disconcerting to American policymakers? And we need to resolve. Now, look, I I I think Vladimir I, I think Vladimir Putin is not a good guy. And I looked at the fact that Vladimir Putin went into Syria uh, to help the Iranians slaughter Syrians. Right. I mean, he, he bombed schools, he, he bombed hospitals. So the idea that he's going to be doing this in Ukraine again is, is, is hardly surprising. My question is, assuming that American policymakers are clever enough to understand that there are all sorts of regimes around the world that we will not get along with. Right. But somehow we must um, deal with in one way or another or or uh, create a policy to deal with them. What is the United States government's policy? regarding Vladimir Putin, especially on his own borders. And I think it's the I think it's the fact that they've never figured out exactly what they want or what to do. They figured out that they could use Ukraine on the cheap to pester and to poke Putin. And what we're seeing right now is um, what what we're seeing is what happens when you poke um, a man who has perhaps correctly been described as a ruthless dictator. But we're seeing what happens when you continue to poke and prod a ruthless dictator without any idea of how to follow up or what your aims are. So that's largely what we've seen 
um, unfolding over the last week? Did this war have to happen? I mean, it's quite possible that Putin would have invaded Ukraine anyway. I don't believe this stuff about him wanting to restore the Soviet empire. And in fact, before they took the Kremlin website, um, before they took the Kremlin website down, made it unavailable, um, you could actually read Putin's recent speeches and see what he's talking about. He's not trying to restore the Soviet empire. The way that he understands it is he's trying to rectify different er errors made by Soviet leaders regarding the ethnic composition of what became the Soviet Union, right? It's not a thoroughgoing critique of Lenin and Stalin, but he explains pretty clearly that what he's doing is he's not looking to um, rebuild the Soviet empire. It's primarily about protecting the interests of Russia, protecting Russian national security. Um, and anyway, my, the, the, the point is, would he have done this anyway, no matter what? We don't know. But I'll tell you what, the fact that the United States wanted to push NATO to Putin's borders is certainly a provocation, right? So this has to be factored in. What, do we, what is in it for the U.S.? to poke Putin. And I say this, I think Putin is a monster. So I'm, I'm not like, you know, unfortunately, we have a climate now where if you do not instantly fly the right flag on this unequivocally, without nuance or discussion, you're called a Putin sympathizer. But really, what is what is the point of the US pushing Putin? Like, for what? To what end? Like, what do they... Well, because you, Ukraine is basically cannon fodder, right? They're they're can't. It's like they're like a human shield instead right. of the U.S. going right at Russia. Right. That's what I it mean, seems like to me. I mean, that that right. What you're asking is exactly is exactly what I'm saying. What is the policy? What is the purpose? Right. Before Syria, uh, before Russia entered Syria. Um, they escalated in 2014, but I believe the first entrance was 2011, 2012. American policymakers might well have said, we don't want the Russians um, having a position on the Eastern Mediterranean. This has been part of the Pax Americana since, uh, you know, since the end of the Cold War, certainly. And we don't want Putin. Uh, we don't want Putin in Syria. And then there could have been a way to address that particular issue. Instead, the Obama administration welcomed, the, uh, effectively welcomed the Russians into Syria. Um, and that, that was part of the Obama administration's Russia policy at that time. But exactly what, 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 is, what is the United States' um, Russia policy on Russia's own borders? What do we want? What do we want to have happen? But when you were saying that anyone who tries to ask these questions or tries to understand what's going on is labeled as a pro-Putin apologist. Let's remember this is a this is a continuation of what's been going on since since the 2016 campaign when Donald Trump was accused of being a uh, you know a a, a a a a Putin asset. And w one of the things that, that the reason that I said talking about Matthew Perna why this is a very good transition because I that's that's it's certain that because this resonates with the anti-Trump operation and, and Russiagate, it's almost certain that the Biden administration will find a way to instrumentalize this crisis as well and turn it against his domestic opponents, meaning 
more than half of America, right? So we're starting to see it now where like, if you're not with us, you're pro-Putin, you're a traitor, you're, I mean, you know, see flashes of this on social media for five years. But I, I, I think it's, I think it's pretty certain they're going to try to find a way to instrumentalize this as well. Well, it just seems odd that they are taking such an anti-Russian stance. But at the same time, the Biden administration has done more to put money in Putin's pocket to finance these things. That is, you know, cutting back our own oil production, lifting the sanctions on Nord Stream 2 so that Europe can get or Germany can get gas and get energy from Russia. But at the same time, they are taking this like very hostile stance to Russia. So it's just there's a lot of cognitive dissonance, um, right. at least for me. I'm, not, I'm no expert on these things. No, 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 no. I think you're right. And a point, a point that I, I continue to try to make to people is like Putin's Iranian, Putin's ally in Tehran, the Biden administration at the same time that they're um, that, that they're, you know, that they're going crazy about Putin in Ukraine. At the same time, they want to uh, uh, pass a nuclear bomb to the Iranians, to a terror state, right? So the idea that somehow Joe Biden is a tough opponent of Vladimir Putin is preposterous, right? And then there's the other issue regarding China, Russia's other partner, right? A lot of people are saying, well, I mean, if if Putin, you know, this is what we hear from Republican officials and conservative uh, foreign policy analysts, well, they've... um, if Joe Biden is not going to stand up to um, what Putin is doing in Ukraine, it doesn't look good for Taiwan. What are the Chinese going to do in Taiwan? And the way I see it, that's looking at it backwards, right? The issue is American enemies have been, American adversaries and enemies have been emboldened by the failure to respond to Wuhan. The issue is not Ukraine. The issue is Wuhan. Two years ago, uh, the Chinese government lied about how COVID-19 started, where it started, when it started, and the nature of transmission. At that point, it became, uh, whether it was intentionally leaked or not is, is irrelevant, because at that point, compounding those lies, it effectively became a bioweapon, a, 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 a deniable, uh, a, a plausibly deniable bioweapon and asymmetric warfare where they were, were where no one were no where they could say I don't know what you're talking about we, we didn't we didn't do anything at all here it was a it was a terrible mistake right but they lied about it no one's held them accountable in fact the Biden administration has done everything in its power to conceal um, the Chinese government's role in this right when the when the DNI published its assessment yeah we'll never know unless the Chinese unless the Chinese give us some details well there were lots of Americans who were in there at the time, right, including, including people who were paid by Anthony Fauci. They, they know what was going on in that laboratory. So the idea, right, that Joe Biden is going really tough on Vladimir Putin and really tough on American enemies is nonsense. Then, OK, go ahead, Julie, because I'm hogging Lee. So no. please, <laughs> go ahead. Don't <laughs> hog Lee. God. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Pete Buttigieg came out today. I think he was asked by an MSNBC, uh, Stephanie Rule, uh, mm-hmm. whether there would be interest in getting uh, oil from Iran. And he <coughs> did yeah. not rule that out. Good. Yeah. What could yeah. go wrong? I, I, I mean, but back to it, this 
always just like the pandemic too goes back to money but also goes back to the climate change movement so Mm -hmm. during the pandemic a lot of the goals of the long sought goals of the climate change cabal were realized and there was a huge plunge in the use of fossil fuels so now that the economy is sort of rebounding they needed something else to justify um eliminating i mean joe biden's goal is to said he would cut fossil fuel emissions by 50 percent by 2030 and of course we know obama tried to do that and was part of the iran deal etc but um this this is where they're headed with that. And that's why you don't see people like AOC or Bernie Sanders apologizing for high energy costs or promising right. to find extra sources uh, of of energy, of, of gas uh, mm. and oil, natural gas and oil. This is what they want. They want right. to completely move to this you, just non-unrealistic, ridiculous idea that we can power everything off of windmills and, and solar panels. But this this is where this is headed. And Lee, could you talk a little bit about how all yeah. of this fits into that? Yeah, sure. Uh, let me let me kind of start inside out. When, you know, a lot of people now will see a lot of our, uh, you know, colleagues and sometimes not colleagues on Twitter talking about stuff like, oh, COVID was a World Economic Forum plan to do this <laughs> and that. Like, I, I don't think that's true. I, I think that a lot of I think that a lot of people like the prime minister of Canada um, sees the opportunity to do certain things that they want, that they wanted to do. And I think that they knew about the things that they wanted to do because of, right, because of the climate, uh, the climate change issue. So they, they, and and what do they want from the climate change, right? The talk of green energy is absolute nonsense, right? The the idea Mm -hmm. that all these, all these renewable energy sources are going to, um, you know, are going to replace uh, fossil fuels is ridiculous. And one of the ways that we know it is because they is because they don't want nuclear energy, right? Which is which is clean and safe, but they don't want that. The purpose of climate change it has nothing to do with environmentalism. The purpose mm-hmm. of climate change is is that it's it's another transfer of wealth, right? And as it turns out, this transfer of wealth, like every transfer of wealth, over at least the last decade, um, uh is helpful is helpful to benefit is beneficial to uh china and at the expense of american interest so this is what it is i mean i mean to undermine our fossil fuel economy hurts american opponents right i mean i for instance and i I know in california close to where um you know close to the different the agricultural regions that uh former congressman nunez represented right They, they 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 the, the, the water wars, right? They didn't want them. They want to kick the farmers off the land and mm-hmm. they want to uh, they want to kick the farmers off the land and they want a new enormous solar or wind farms, right? The real point is not the solar or wind farms. The point is to kick the farmers off the land. The point is to, to, to destroy the economic base of their opponents. Mm-hmm. So this is what we saw during COVID, right? They understood, they were able to move so quickly on COVID because this is what they've been thinking about and planning with the climate change stuff. So we wonder how did all these small businesses shut down? What happened? Because that's the point. They want to destroy the economic base of their political opponents. That's all climate change is, right? The rest of it is totally fake. And how do we know it's fake? From John Kerry flying a private plane 
to Barack Obama spending $10 million on seafront property <laughs> on the coast of yeah. Massachusetts, right? I mean, obviously none of them believe it. We point this out all that we, people point it out all the time and it gets dismissed. Ah, just But look, you can see by people's actions what they really believe in. Mm-hmm. They don't believe they don't believe in climate change the way that climate change is discussed like that. It's a political instrument to destroy well, like the, like, their domestic opponents. Like the virus, right? Like they we were told how deadly it was and yet we kept seeing these elites prancing right. around without their masks, socializing right. people maskless. Well, the average American was, you know, locked up. Their kid was masked. Their business was shut down. Right. So, you know, you're right. They don't. It's it's just a means of control is what right. it is. And and a transfer of wealth. It just seems interesting that they're willing to put our dependent to do that at the expense of our independence uh, so that we become indebted to to places like Russia for energy or even now, I guess, with Buttigieg, with Iran. I mean, why would we? depend on Iran for energy. I mean, energy is a national security issue. Just ridiculous. I mean, right. what what do you say to that, Lee? I, I, I mean, you know, I, I mean, I, I, we're living under an occupation government. I mean, these people are not, I, 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 again, look at what they've done, right? Everything, I mean, certainly starting with the, I, I'm not, I'm not, certainly there were indications of it, you know, with, 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 the, with Russiagate with the anti-Trump operations, but I mean, with the George Floyd riots, I mean, we saw it quite clearly, right? This is, this is, this is what occupation governments do. They destroy your symbols. They rewrite your history. So we have the 1619 project and the 1619 project was backed by prestige, Ameri- by prestige institutions like the New York times. Mm-hmm. That's who went out and pushed 1619, right? The New York times. They destroy your they destroy your monuments. They rewrite your stories. They run campaigns of demoralization. Your culture is nothing. Your heroes are nothing. You are nothing. Your dreams are nothing. Your children is are nothing. Their future is nothing. It all it all comes from us. Unless you want to wind up poor or dead, you better stay in line. That's how occupation governments act. This is an occupation government. Right. One hundred percent. It's an occupation government. These people have no loyalty to the United States. And worse than that. And this sounds like an understatement. But I think that once we start to think about the uh, about what it really means, these people really do not like America. Right. They 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 in fact loathe Americans. That's the that's the essential point. So the idea that they're going to crush their political opponents through uh, through covid regulations or through climate change, I mean, they have no problem with that. There's nothing wrong with that. I, I'll, I'll say one thing. I, 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 whenever I speak with you guys, I'm very, I'm optimistic, and you may think I'm Pollyannish, <laughs> but I, but I, but I think that one of the things with one of the things that happened over the last couple of years, maybe the only upshot of the COVID regulations, this, this uh, again, a campaign of, uh, you know, a campaign of demoralization and desecrating American cities and American public life. The one thing is that now that people have a better, a lot of people have a much better idea of what climate change is about, Mm -hmm. right? Now that they're gonna try to shove climate change down people, so it's like, this smells an awful lot like COVID COVID regulations. You know what? It looks like the same exact thing. So I think that as they try to uh, continue to transition into this nonsense, and as they continue to try to push it, 
people are going to be pretty savvy and they're going to understand, you know, they're, they're going to have a much better idea of what's, of what's going on and how to, um, how to fight it. So, um, back to this D- D- Russia, Ukraine conflict, Wh- how do you see this progressing? Like what, where, how is this going to end or um, not? I mean, Russia is uh, Russia is a great power. It's not a superpower like the United States, but it's a great power. It has a nuclear arsenal. I mean, I, I you know, the, I mean, the other problem is we, everyone is talking about the, you know, the, the Ukrainian, you know, people who are fighting against Putin and whether this is, you know, fifty-year-old women who are, you know, out there and fighting street to street against tanks. I mean, you know, God bless them. I mean, these poor people. I mean, they're under fire. But I, I mean, the 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 odds aren't the odds aren't good. And the other thing is, there are a lot of people in that country, especially in the eastern part of Ukraine, who are, who are more sympathetic to Russia, who probably prefer to be that. So I mean. You know, it, 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 it's it's hard to predict the outcomes right now, but I don't see an awful lot of military resistance. And also I see a lot of people who would probably prefer to be uh, aligned with Russia. I mean, I, I, I certainly think it's possible for Western powers to try to turn this into a quagmire. I mean, we have to remember that the Trump administration, and I, I don't, I'm not sure this was a great idea, but the Trump administration gave weapons to the Ukrainians, unlike Barack Obama, gave weapons to the Ukrainians, and their idea was, is that, well, it gives us a chance to fight um, to fight Putin on the cheap, right? Will Western powers continue to try to fight Putin on the cheap? Well, the cost is going up a lot. Uh, I, 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 look, yeah. I, I mean, I'm, a, a big question, a big question for me, and it should be a big question for everyone, is could this violence have been averted? Putin says, Putin says, he just wanted a neutral, if ideally a friendly, but he wanted a neutral Ukraine on his border. And frankly, Ukraine itself should have taken responsibility and said, we're a small state. We're a buffer state caught between two larger powers, Russia and Europe. Both have nuclear arsenals. Uh, Vladimir Putin is a little more dangerous. So at the very least, we should court um, or w- we should have cordial relations with Moscow as we should have cordial relations with the Europeans. But we can't, um, we can't change our geography. We're stuck here forever. As long as we're Ukraine, we're stuck here forever. And if we're gonna keep our independence or, or some measure of our independence, we're gonna have to find out some way to deal with Vladimir Putin. But that's not what happened. The Ukrainians instead allowed themselves to be used as an instrument against a much greater power. It's, 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 it's what I've been saying to people for months, before the actual invasion happened, is this will be uh, a lesson that statesmen will uh, study for for generations to come, for hundreds and hundreds of years. What happens when you're a smaller power and you allu- uh, you allow yourself to be used by a great power halfway around the world who you know is not willing to go to the wall for you? Why did you do it? What did you think? You sacrifice you sacrifice not only the sovereignty of your own country. You sacrificed your children's futures. You sacrificed human lives. Why did you do it? And that speaks to profound corruption in Ukraine's political class, right? What should they have done when, when the Democrats uh, came to them to ask the Ukrainians to help in their 
uh, in their operation against Donald Trump starting in 2016, mm-hmm. or right. when Obama State Department officials came in 2014 to assemble a new government, right? Uh, uh, to, to assemble a new government friendly to the United States but hostile to Russia. What should they have done? They should have said, "Oh, Americans, we are, we 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 love and admire America. You are, you guys are, an example to all the world, and we would love to take your money. But that would endanger the lives of our children. You've conditioned it. You say that we have to take your money. We will not get your money unless we continue to be used by you as an instrument against this great power. Unfortunately, that means that winters will be colder here. Uh, Ukrainians will be hungrier and we're going through some hard times. But what you are saying is the choices between Ukrainians losing their lives. We can't do that. That's what they should have said. They should have said, no, we're not going to take your money. We're not going to be used as an instrument against you. So it's really the way I see it, the fault of three the fault of uh, th- three different groups here, namely Vladimir Putin, two, the Ukrainian political class, and three, the U.S. national security establishment. These are the three. These are the three groups that are responsible for what we're seeing unfold right now in Ukraine. Well, Julie, anything? I could keep talking about this forever, but we don't have forever. So, um, no, I one- think that was perfectly said. That those are the yeah. three culprits, right? I mean, yeah. that yeah. that's it. I mean, we, we we could also we could also add in the EU, but I mean, but you know, mm-hmm. but, I, but 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 I mean, you know, the United States is 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 you know really the it still is the spearhead of the West. So you know that's who is really calling. I mean, it, the EU helped drive the EU helped drive the Ukrainians against the Russians in 2013 with that trade deal, the pseudo trade deal they offered. Right. The plan was to flood the Ukrainian and therefore the Russian market with cheap goods, which would have which would have damaged quite badly the Russian economy. Putin was outraged, threatened the president of Ukraine at the time and said, if you do it, we're going to cripple you. So just take our 15 billion dollar aid package. Right. He did. But why he reneg- would Europe do that? But why would why? Europe do that? Like, in other words, if they do what do they want to fight? I mean, why would they do that? Yeah, that's what I mean. It's all half measures. Right. No one's figured out what they want to do with Russia. It's like, why won't you just live with Putin? Just deal with it. Find some way to deal with it. But they won't. They fa- they wanted to find cheap and easy ways to go to Putin again. For what purpose? It's, it, it's unclear. That's what I mean. It's like there was there has never been a larger vision. There has never been a larger strategic goal to what they're doing. We're just going to poke Putin here. We're going to threaten his economy and see what he does. Maybe the Ukrainians will go through with it. Maybe they won't. And if they don't, then, you know, then maybe we'll, we'll, we'll be able to cause some chaos in Kiev and see how things shake out then. Right. They're, they're, they're you know, using human lives to experiment in foreign policy. That's who these people are. And we to come back to how we started. These are the very same people who are now employing the same methods. Um, uh, on, on, on Americans, because that's how they perceive that's how they perceive human life. That it, you can throw it away. We do you have a figure? How many billions have been poured into Ukraine in the past decade? I I think the U.S. it's at least three billion. I know there are all sorts of loan guarantees. Well, the, I mean, yeah, monetary yeah, the, fund. I mean, how ma- yeah. how much money has been dumped into that uh, well, laundry I, machine? 
I mean, you know, the most famous loan guarantee, of course, is the one that Joe Biden threatened not to grant. <laughs> right. if, the, if the government of Ukraine didn't did not fire the prosecutor investigating Son Hunter, he wasn't going to give them that loan guarantee. So that's what I mean. That this is what's been going on for over a decade in Ukraine, right? How this money has been conditioned, who the money's gone to, and why it's gone to them, right? So part of it is to fight Putin, um, again, for for no clear strategic purpose. Uh, look, by the way, I mean, if the Western powers and the United States had a good reason, said we, we've got to get Vladimir Putin out of there because he's, he's a danger to world peace. Well, okay, um, make your case. And you'll also have to explain why you're giving a nuclear bomb to Putin's ally in Iran and why you're further right. empowering China. But maybe you do have a case. Maybe maybe we really are at the precipice of World War Three. But explain and now explain how this is going to happen. So is NATO really going to is NATO really going to march through Kiev and, and go to, uh, you know, and, and seize Russian oil fields? I mean, what are we, you know, what, what, what what's going to happen? What's the larger plan? There's never be, there's never been one. Maybe you can join us again soon and yeah. we can look back and I, see what how I this would has love that. developed. Um, I would like that. And thank you for joining us, Lee. And thank I you, always listeners. Love being with, I always love being with you guys. Thank you. And your article is on tablet. Yes. Your latest is on tablet. Okay. Yes. Perfect. Good. I, oh, you know you what? Really, I wanted I wanted to promote on. one thing, if I may, if you don't mind. Yes. So I, did this, I did this five-part series with the Daily Wire called The Enemy Within, and it's about the U.S., um, it's about our oligarchy and um, its relationship to China. So I deal with subjects like Anthony Fauci, Joe Biden, the NBA, or I should say the Biden family and the Biden administration, the NBA, Hollywood and academia. And I, I think I did an okay job, but the guys at the Daily Wire did an astonishingly awesome job with the production. It looks great. I think that, you know, I think I think I have a strong argument. But so, yeah, so I hope that uh, I hope your listeners will check that out if they get a chance. Is it up now? How have I missed this? It is. It is up now. Yeah. Again, oh, I mean, it, 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 it's interesting. People are responding well. People really like it. Oh, and, I'm sure. Uh, again, just the production. It was a real pleasure. Working, working with the Daily Wire team, just a, a really great bunch of people. And um, so I'm excited about that. And I hope that everyone gets a chance to check it out. All right. And that's at dailywire.com. Is that where people can find it? Yes. Called The Enemy Within. All right, people, you've got your assignment. Thank you. Which is to go watch this. I'm going to watch it. I didn't even know about this. I'm oh, yeah. Good. It looks great. It looks so good. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to watch it. And you should be reading Lee at Epic Times and also at Tablet um, because it's worth every second of your time to read what Lee has to say. And thank you, listeners, for spending an hour with us or probably over an hour, but you're lucky we gave you some free minutes today. If you haven't subscribed to our podcast at iTunes, Happy Hour with Julie and Liz, and we will be back next week. Thanks for listening to Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. We'll see you next week. Bye.